in a perfect world, every single tax position a company, every single tax position a company included on their financial statements would be one in which they and the tax authorities could trust to be 100% certain. We don't even need to check this, the tax authorities would say. We trust you just like you trust us. In this tax eaten before the fall, there'd be no IRS, state, or foreign tax audits, and nothing in a company's tax filings that would ever need to be second-guessed. But that's not the world we live in, is it? And until tax software as sophisticated as it is gets to this point of flawless accuracy, companies and tax authorities will always need some amount of explanation and justification for their tax positions taken. Enter uncertain tax positions. These are positions taken which are not more than 50% likely to be upheld upon an IRS, state, or foreign tax audit. A particularly tricky point is measuring this uncertainty on tax benefits, as a company must determine what percentage of such benefit they may take. To break down how this likelihood is calculated and what percentage of these benefits may be taken, we'd like to welcome back Cross-Border Solutions' own Senior Tax Manager Howard Telson, and for the first time, Cross-Border Solutions Tax Manager Janelle Hira to the show. I'm actually going to hand things off to Howard for this conversation. Howard, you have the floor. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate it. So as Matt alluded to, today we're focusing on uncertain tax positions, or UTPs. And to really drill into this topic, my colleague across border, tax manager Janelle Hira, is going to join me today for this discussion. Janelle, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Howard. Thank you so much for having me here today. No problem. Now, Janelle, before we dig into the topic at hand, would you mind providing listeners kind of a little background on yourself? So I have 12 plus years of experience specializing in all aspects of federal, multi-state and international tax areas. I started my career with Deloitte uh, right out of college and then kind of moved to private sector from there, working mainly for Fortune 500 companies focusing on the tax areas. I recently joined XBS a few months ago, and I'm excited to be here today to discuss the specific topic of uncertain tax positions and why those tax positions are imperative to the company and its financial statements. And I really appreciate that background. And, and with that, I think we can dive in. And so to sort of frame this discussion, you know, we of course need to start with, with defining what it is we're talking about. And before we even get into uncertain tax positions, I think we need to talk about what exactly is a tax position to start. And then maybe if you could just elaborate on what would actually make it uncertain too. So just to kick it off, what is a tax position and what would make it uncertain? That's a great question. And to start with, it's very important to understand what a tax position is for a company. And it could differ from company to company. So a tax position is a position a company has either taken or they expect to take on the tax return that is reflected in measuring their current or deferred income taxes in the financial statement. So in ordinary course of business, an average corporate tax return will include several tax positions. This could be in the current year, they might not file their tax return until next year, but would still want to account for it on the current year financial statement, expecting that position to be taken in their 2020 return, for example. A tax position merely reflects on how the tax law is interpreted and apply to each company's circumstances. So to give a little bit more overview, the term tax position can include wide range of things like deciding 
to exclude taxable income or take a certain tax deduction or a credit on the tax return. It could include the character of the income or loss. So say if it's ordinary or capital, again, in nature, you know, it differs from company to company on how they look at it. Also, if a company is subject to a tax in a certain jurisdiction, that is a deciding or a tax position that a company takes. And also something like if my entity is tax exempt or would it be considered more like a pass-through entity? So these are some examples of what a tax position could be and how it could be different for company to company. Since tax legislation, case laws, and tax authority practice do not always provide clarity on all these transactions, it is normal for companies to have some sort of uncertainty as to income and deferred tax treatment of certain position, which are always open to interpretation. So these findings usually emphasize uncertain tax position assessment. A tax position or an uncertain tax position can result in a permanent reduction in income tax payable. So if someone would ask, why is it important for my financial statement or as a company overall to track those positions? It's because this could result in a permanent reduction in income taxes payable. There could be a deferral of income taxes otherwise that you're currently paying or, you know, to future years or a change is expected in the realization of your deferred tax assets. Just to kind of give an overview of what uncertain tax position kind of could be. Yeah, no, I think that that's great context. And just to kind of take a step back and, and summarize, I think what you said is there's kind of two pieces to this puzzle. So one is overall, what's a tax position, right? And, and as you said, a tax position is super broad, right? So it can be right. pretty much anything that happens on a tax return or even a financial statement. So any item of income, deduction, credit, what character certain income is, right? You know, capital or ordinary. Then it could even be whether or not you file a tax return. So if you're looking at, you know, a particular mm-hmm. jurisdiction, and there's different rules that require particular filings of tax returns. So whether or not you file could even be considered a tax position. So it's really, really broad concept. And then to your point, once you kind of define tax position, you look at, you know, what's an uncertain tax position. It's something where there's inherent kind of uncertainty to some position, the tax law, the regulations, the rules aren't necessarily hundred percent clear. I think as everyone knows, you know, whether that's individual laws or corporate laws, which we're kind of focusing on in this case, But the tax laws, you know, as everyone kind of knows, aren't 100% clear. So a lot of times there's items of income or deduction that are open to interpretation for how certain companies treat them. And these are the kind of things that could result in uncertainty and ultimately result in uncertain tax position. And now, you know, when we talk about uncertain tax positions, you know, I, I hear tax professionals throw around a lot of terms, and that's kind of common across the full tax spectrum. But uncertain tax positions are no stranger to that. And just a level set for our listeners what are some of the most common terms that, that tax folks will use to kind of describe this concept? So it's funny you ask this question because you know, when I started my career, I was working and, you know, people mainly refer to them or most commonly they are known as FIN48 adjustments and or unrecognized tax benefits. And then I went to another client and they talked about uncertain tax position and I'm looking at my manager like, what is that? I don't know. I've never heard of that term. And then he said, it's FIN48 adjustments. I said, oh, <laughs> It is very common that people use FIN48 most commonly. And now I think uncertain UTPs are to kind of, you know, make it more like an abbreviated version of that. UTPs is where you hear um, auditors or your tax planning team or your tax provision team use that term a lot. Yeah, I think FIN48 is very common. It's the old, old standard under FS109 before AC740 and a lot of people 
still like to reference it with that term. So that's helpful. Now, with that terminology kind of aside, let's shift over for a moment on, on why these matter. So whatever we call them, UTPs, UTBs, FIN48. There's a couple of different kind of perspectives we could look at here. You know, for example, we could think of the view of the IRS and other taxing authorities, why they matter to them. We could think of why they matter to financial statement auditors, like an accounting firm, or from the views of people actually doing the provision, or from financial statement users, like an investor who's just reviewing 10K or 10Q. But overall, just kind of holistically, how should we think about these? How do they impact the tax position of a company? And and why do these kind of matter as a whole? So before 2010, I think these UTPs were not as common or were not as important to be reported. And one, you know, you would ask why. And certainly it has changed over the years. And especially these are intended to cut the time that IRS requires to review returns. This can help both the taxpayer and and the agency to come and kind of understand where they're coming from, each version. Also, like I mentioned before 2014, most of the corporations that had assets of at least 10 million or more did have to file. But after 2014, that laws changed. And then the IRS or the taxing authority made it more of a mandatory statement that you have to attach to your tax return. So now suddenly this has to be tracked, had to be disclosed properly for your auditors because they are going to go into your tax return and do the IRS. So that's why I think the impact of the position that you're taking as a company overall matters. Right. Yeah, and that, that's helpful. And I think, you know, it, it's interesting, you know, UTPs because they sort of tread the line between financial statements and tax returns, right? And you mentioned now you're a company of a certain size you need to actually file a form with your tax return if you have any uncertain tax positions on your financial statements. So it's sort of treading the line and merging these two disparate worlds of financial statements and tax returns. And you mentioned it before, but uncertain tax positions at their heart really revolve around, did you claim something on a tax return in the past? Or you know, did you file or not file a tax return in the past? Or do you plan on claiming something on a tax return in the future? And if so, then what is the position of that? What's your stance on that tax position? What's the certainty around it or uncertainty? And depending on that, then you'll have to potentially accrue a liability to your financials, which we'll get into kind of momentarily. But it's an interesting concept that it kind of bridges the gap between that financial statement and tax return. It really works kind of between them both ways. Right. With all that and appreciating, you know, what these are and, and why they're important. Can you provide some insight as to what types of items could be considered a UTP or put another way, what types of items could be uncertain? Some of the most common ones that I've always seen in within a lot of organization is either to include particular entities taxable income or a certain deductibility of amount for tax purposes and not for gap purposes or for your financial statement purposes. Other thing is transfer pricing methodology. Given the companies are going global and how each country or each jurisdiction has a different taxing authority and methodology that they want to see, it's always a position that you will be either questioned on or you will be uncertain on. So that's another one that I've seen that is very common. Also, the interpretation of tax law, depending on the new court case that just happened recently. So how do you interpret that? Do you go with the code case or do you use the 
law that has been defined in the code section, the interpretation of legislation between the tax authority and the tax advisors, right? Also the double taxation agreement between two countries. And the other one is also like whether it's subject to withholding taxes or not. These are some of the most common positions that companies take and they're uncertain about how they're going to result it and they always have to either put up a liability or most likely or not, they're not 100% sure it will be sustained on the examination. That definitely makes sense. And one thing I just want to just point out before we get more into the nuts and bolts of UTPs is if we take a step back and think about the difference between a tax return and financial statements. And, and you gave some good examples of you know what some UTPs look like here. But someone may have the question of, well, I, I don't quite follow how you take a position on a financial statement versus a tax return, and it's uncertain. Like, how could you put an uncertain tax position on a tax return? And why do you need to accrue additional liability on your financial statements? I think that concept is a, a little hazy. And, and what I would say there is that we're looking at two different standards, right? So a tax return, to include a position, if you're excluding income or taking a deduction, whatever have you, you're looking at a substantial authority standard. So to include a position on a tax return, you want to get to a substantial authority standard, which is generally about a 40% kind of confidence that it's upheld upon audit by the IRS or you know, state or local taxing authority or foreign taxing authority. But on your financial statements, you want to get to that more likely than not standard. So greater than 50% chance that it's upheld on an audit. So you sort of have this gap where you can put something on a tax return that doesn't necessarily meet your financial statement standard. And we get to this in-between world where you have something on that tax return that, that meets a tax return standard, but that doesn't meet your financial statement standard, then you need to kind of accrue for that item on your financial statements, right? That, that's very well explained, Albert. I, I agree 100%. Yeah, I guess with that background, now that we've given some examples and talked about the difference between the return standard and the financial statement standard, would you mind walking us through the process or steps of determining company's UTP position? How exactly does this work? So like you mentioned, how right, like there's this always a difference in your tax return versus your financial statements. And how do you calculate that position? How do you accrue for it? Or how do you disclose it on your financial statement, right? So it's a very complex calculation. And it's always where I think the FASB has realized that it's always a struggling point for a lot of companies. So I think they made, uh, they came up with some specific guidance on how to account for uncertainty in taxes or in your financial statements. So the model for uncertain tax position has two main thresholds that you can kind of look at. So first one is recognition, and then the second one is measurement. So the recognition of the effects of tax position could be considered first and thereafter it's measurement. So if there's no recognition, there's no need to go to the second step for measurement. So that makes sense. It's kind of a two-step process. Start with recognition and then go to measurement. So why don't we break down those those two kind of key pieces a bit further? And we could start with recognition, the first step. So what does this actually mean from a practical perspective of how this is applied? And if you have an example or something of that nature, that, that would be helpful as well. Absolutely. And I think an example would be great because it's just so complicated that it's easier to put it in the layman's term provide an example and say, hey, this is how you can do a recognition of uncertain tax position. So just to give you an overview of what a recognition or how you can mm. come up with that threshold is an entity should recognize the effects of uncertain tax position when they believe that it is more likely than not that taxing authorities will 
upon examination sustain the attack's position. So when you say more likely than not means there is, in management's opinion, a likelihood of more than 50% to go back to what you had highlighted when we were talking before. So when the management is making that assessment, what are some of the areas that you should be focusing on is assume that the tax position will always be examined by revenue services and that they will have full knowledge of all the circumstances. This means an entity cannot account for an uncertain tax position because they believe the risk of an audit or detection is low. Or calculate the effects of tax position based on the legislation rulings, case law, and then administrative practices of revenue authorities insofar as they widely understand. So go ahead, go through all these processes. Like this is the kind of the steps that you want to go through before you say, okay, I'm gonna go ahead and recognize an uncertain tax position. Consider the tax position on its own without offsetting it against any other uncertain tax positions. Detection risk and administrative practices and precedents. So only when the tax position meets this recognition threshold, should it be measured to determine the amount to be recognized in financial statements. So, so that was all theory. Now let's look at example. So let's say you complete your tax return and initially conclude you owe $1,100 after taking a position that we're certain. You then take a further look at the return and say, hmm, I think I may qualify for additional tax credit. As a result, you take a position which reduces your liability by 100. So instead of 1100, now you owe $1,000. So on your books, what you will do is you will debit a tax expense for 1000 and credit your taxes payable for the same to match the tax return. But you still have that $100 of uncertain tax position to assess. So what do you do? This is where step one is recognition. Let's say you determine the odds of 50% or less that the tax position would be sustained. That means you're taking the credit on your tax return, but you can't reflect that benefit on your financial statement because it doesn't meet the recognition threshold of more likely than not, which is more than 50%. So that's another $100 of tax expense you need to record, taking a total tax expense to 1100 with the other side of the entry being a liability for the unrecognized tax benefit of $100. So this was the first one that we went to say, okay, it doesn't meet the criteria. So we are, we are going to book $100 as an unrecognized tax benefit of, on our books. But let's say if the tax position meets a recognition criteria for more likely than not, that means you can recognize at least some of the benefit in your financial statement. Then the second step in the model helps you determine the appropriate amount of benefit to record. That's where you're going to go and go to the next step of measurement. Right. So this requires you to figure out the largest amount of benefit, determine on the cumulative probability basis, and we'll talk more about it when we cover the threshold of measurement and how that works. I think that's really helpful. And that example kind of sheds light on this whole paradigm where, you know, like you said, you know, a taxpayer may be found that they have $100 of a credit, right? That could be an R&D credit, foreign tax credit, right? It could be any, any type of credit that Right. Could be any kind of credit. Yep. And they said, well, now that we see that we may have this credit, now we need to look at, you know, the certainty behind this tax position. We need to measure it. You know, we need to look at the recognition threshold. So they kind of look at, you know, all the guidance, all the tax law, all the regulations, the case law, administrative practices. And they say, you know, does this position make sense to claim? You know, do we have enough kind of support for this position to claim it on a tax return? And they may say yes, or they may say no. 
And, you know, if they say no, if they don't claim it on a tax return, well, then they're not going to take the credit and you're kind of done. You don't need to worry about it, right? If you didn't meet mm-hmm. that substantial authority, you know, greater than 40% likelihood of being sustained, you're not going to claim it on a tax return and you don't really need to worry about it. But let's just say they do think that some or a portion of the credit they would be able to take, right, to offset their, their tax liability, and then they claim it on a tax return, they meet that substantial authority threshold. The question is, could they get to that more likely than not threshold? And, and like you said, if so, you know, how much? How much? Exactly. Is it a portion? Is it all? Maybe it's none. Maybe you've reached the substantial authority for the $100 on the tax return, but you can't meet, reach the more likely than not on your financial statement. So, so that's sort of step one, right? Right. And now we could get into kind of step two. So, you know, once we figure out recognition and we determine, you know, what the item is, we look at all the guidance and we figure out, you know, what we think we could kind of claim on our tax return. How do we kind of measure this now? How, how do we go to step two and kind of measure how much of the benefit we could actually take in terms of our financials here? So the important thing in step two and how you can do that, measure that particular approach of most likely than not, is going to be based on a cumulative probability approach. So what does that mean? Which means that the effects of the uncertainty exposition should be measured to the amount for which the probability is higher than 50%. So again, what does this process involve? How do I kind of say that, hey, yes, my probability is higher than 50%. So again, this process kind of involves determining a range of outcomes and assigning a probability to each one of those. So this is a matter of judgment and will depend on a lot of factors such as the nature of the tax position and the weight of legislation you know, in the entity's favor or the degree to which the entity is prepared to defend the position. There could be a situation where this position could go don't agree and could end up going to a court or end up, are you open to a settlement? Like I mentioned before, are you willing to meet your tax authorities halfway? And also, if no single outcome has higher than 50% probability, the effects will be measured for the highest amount at which the cumulative probability exceeds 50%. So to kind of go and use our example that we did right before, to say, uh, let's assume instead of that, it's more likely than not that the $100 credit we previously discussed would sustain upon examination. So then the 100 is the gross amount of benefit to be realized. But the amount to record is the largest amount of the benefit that's more likely than not be realized on a cumulative basis. So what does that mean? So rather than picking a single dollar value, you think matches up to your 51% likelihood, the model that you're gonna use using the probability, considers assigning different probabilities to individual outcomes. So you're gonna look at more of an individual level for each of that probability. So the outcome that provides the greatest tax benefit should be assessed first. So in our example, if the probability of realizing the full 100 was 70%, then you would stop there, record the full benefit and would have zero for your uncertain tax position liability. But often the full amount of tax position, not the amount that means the cumulative probability threshold. And most of the time, companies be a little conservative in that approach. So let's go back to our example and see how you know the measurement assessment work, assuming that it's not going to be 70% and we cannot fully realize it. So first you'll identify various outcomes or scenarios, starting with the largest amount of benefit. So then we start with the 100 and go down from there. So like 100, then 75, 55, right? 
based on the probability. So once you do that, you will assign the probabilities to each of these scenarios. So for $100, you can assign 25% of what the texting authorities might accept and the collective probability of acceptance, probably 25%. For $75, you say 30% probability of tax authorities accepting it and the collective probability of acceptance, it will be 55% based on our calculation. And then 55 and so forth and so on. So in this case, a tax benefit of 75 would ultimately be recognized based on the cumulative probability of the first two scenarios. So the final entry that you will record to unrecognized tax benefit would be $25 debit to your tax expense and a $25 credit to your It sounds like it's sort of like you know, peeling back the layers of the onion. So you start with you start with a hundred bucks, you say, you know, yes. I, I think I may have this credit of a hundred dollars. And then I look at it and I say, out of a full hundred dollars, you know, what do I think my probability of success is here? And like you said in your example, I'm at 25, right? Then you peel back a layer and I say, okay, what if I took a little bit less? What if I were only going to take a $75 credit instead of the $100 credit? What do I think my probability of acceptance there is going to be? And then, you know, you got to an additional kind of 30%. And then when I add those together, I got to 55%. And all of a sudden now I'm at more likely than not, right? I'm at greater, greater than 50%. So I could sort of right. stop. I could mm -hmm. say, okay, I've met my threshold for my financial statements and I'm able to accrue that $75 benefit to my financial statements. And you know, on my tax return, I met that probability at 40%, that substantial authority, and I could accrue it to my tax return once I hit the 40%. Peel back the layers of the onion. You look at the full benefit, and then you look at you know, what's the probability of acceptance there. And then you know, if, if you're below 50, then you go to the next level, and then you keep going basically until you're above that more likely than not threshold, right? And whatever portion isn't more likely than not, yes. then you have to look at that recording, that UTP entry, and, and accruing a UTP liability on your books, right? The collective probability of acceptance should not be over 100%. It should be, it should add up, right. up to 100%, right? So, so at 25, then you have your 55, then your 35. And then, right. you know, if it comes to 100, you stop there. So that's the approach that you take. Yes. Yeah. So, so like you said, in our example, $75 would be a good wait, I don't need to go any further because that kind of meets my, you know, most likely or not on my 51% threshold. And it's 50, you know, I'm going to go ahead and use, take that amount as my benefit that will be recognized. Hi, I'm Matthew DeMello, and you may know me as the host of the Fiona Show Cross Border Solutions Weekly Transfer Pricing Podcast. And while I love to discuss transfer pricing, this podcast isn't the only place you can hear me doing it. Cross-Border Solutions recently relaunched Transfer Pricing University, a live webinar series where you can learn about modern-day transfer pricing, everything from methodologies to comparables to preparing documentation to meet country-specific regulations. Good stuff, I know. Chief Economist Mimi Song leads the sessions. I just ask the occasional obvious question. Since our program is NASBA certified, you can earn one CPE credit for joining each session. Pretty sweet. So what are you waiting for? Join us for Transfer Pricing University Weekly. Classes are free, so now you really have no reason to miss it. Sign up at xbs.ai slash tpu. And I think when we talk about these percentages from just a practitioner perspective and just, you know, someone even who's not as familiar with tax, I'm sure it seems kind of 
wonky, right? To look at all the kind of support out there, all the regulations, the tax laws, et cetera, and to come up with a percentage that you think this item is going to have success on an IRS audit or state audit or foreign audit. It's kind of a wonky concept. And, you know, I think in reality, and, you know, I'm curious, uh, Janelle, of your experience too, but I think in reality, on the items that are really unclear, where it really is, the water really is muddy, you know, I think a lot of taxpayers will go ahead and actually seek out a tax opinion, right? They'll go to a law firm or an accounting firm, and they'll try to get a tax opinion and understand, based on all that available evidence, what the standard reached by that law firm or accounting firm is. And they'll have that support as kind of audit support you know, for particular positions. Does does that sound right? Yes, absolutely. And I think, you know, I mean, obviously our example is much more simpler, right? And our percentages look so much easier. But like you said, given the tax laws and how you're going to come up with those percentages, it's not always, you don't have that expertise or you always need a second opinion, right? And that's where most of the companies always rely on either the tax law firms or like for to advise them and kind of support the stand they're taking for the tax position, like something like a memo or something from them that kind of stands ground when you do present your financial statement and disclose those, right? Because mm-hmm. your auditor might say, hey, how did you come up with this? What support do you have to take that stand? And that's where you can provide second opinion or a review memo or something from either an authority or also just from one of the big four. I mean, just to give an example, personal level, we had with New Jersey changing their Mm -hmm. laws and their apportionment in my prior company, we actually went to the state to get the ruling and written down and approved so that we have that for the position that we were taking. So that tomorrow there's an audit we have that ruling from the state because based on what we decided, we were uncertain of how the state is going to interpret that law. We wanted something in written from the state itself saying that, okay, it's okay to do this. And obviously mm. we had a help with one of the big four and we went and did that. So just to give agree to exactly what you're saying, yes, it is always a case where you will right. go to yep. a third party to help you or stand your ground. Yeah, I think that's a great point. Gaining certainty through discussing with the taxing authority or getting some documentation from the taxing authority that a certain position is acceptable in their eyes. Because you have that documentation, you could take that tax position in the future and you wouldn't have to consider it uncertain, right? Because you have some certainty around where the taxing authority is going to go with that. But just with all that, I think we could shift gears Mm -hmm. for a moment. There's another element to UTP that I, I think folks commonly encounter, and that's interest and penalty calculations. So it seems like the UTPs always come with these interest and penalty calculations. And I'm curious if you can provide our listeners a little bit of context as to why that is. And then how exactly do these computations kind of get layered into the amounts that we were just talking about for purposes of accruing UTP amounts in the books? So that's a great point, Howard. And always when you have tax returns or taxes, underpaid payment of taxes always has interest and penalty factor to it, right? And as an organization, if you're going to have uncertain tax positions and you are not sure which way it's going to go, you always want to have those interest and penalty amounts added into that liability amount that you are going to put on your financial statement. But how do we record this, right? So usually interest and penalty is going to go on your income statement under interest or penalties, right, which you will track of the year or quarter after quarter, depending on how we do it. So interest basically is calculated every time that you make a change to the amount. And just to take a step back, 
all these tax position, they have to be assessed yearly. So after a year is done, you want to reassess them and see if there are any changes in tax law and if you need to make any changes at your end for that particular position that you had taken. So so your interest calculation will change and so will your penalty. Interest is going to change quarter after quarter because it goes by the amount of period you're either underpaid. And for penalties, it's a certain percentage of your underpayment. Those two will be on your income tax or your P&L. It's going to get accrued on your balance sheet as well. You know, I, I just want to note on the interest and penalty side, when we talk about uncertain tax positions, accruing an amount looking at the tax return versus the financial statements. And we're saying, if you took a position on your tax return that's not more likely than not, we're going to accrue that the delta to the financial statement. So we get to a point where you're at a tax position that is more likely than not. And I think kind of the key with uncertain tax positions is you have to kind of keep following the logic where you say, okay, you took this tax position on a tax return that didn't meet the financial statement standard. Therefore, when you get audited, by the IRS or state local taxing authority or foreign taxing authority, they may disallow that deduction you have or the credit you took or whatever it may be, or they may say you have additional income. And then not only that, but when the IRS or you know a taxing authority assesses an amount on an audit, generally that amount's gonna also come potentially with interest and penalties. So, you know, of course they're auditing tax return potentially a couple of years later after it was filed, and you didn't really pay the requisite amount of tax at that period of time. So they could potentially assess that interest and penalties. And because of the nature of UTPs, basically we're saying on the financial statements, you actually need to accrue for that interest and penalties as well. So you sort of need to see the item all the way through, all the potential add-on impacts of that item. And that includes that interest and penalties that you just discussed. I 100% agree to that. And and it's, it's not only that, right? You also have to keep reassessing them, like I mentioned, every time you reassess the position. So it could change and you will have to accrue them every year and change it as if it falls off, you take it off, right? Mm -hmm. If the statute expired and, you know, you no longer have a risk of the taxing authority examining it, you can take that interest or penalty off as well with your tax position that you're going to write off. I think that's a great point. So you're saying that the IRS or other taxing authorities, they have a limited window to audit your tax returns. Generally, it's about three years after you file in the U.S. And then states sometimes can be a little bit longer, maybe four years. Yeah, the states could differ. But yeah, for federal purposes, it's always going to be three years. And sometimes for foreign, I think it's about four, four years, maybe. I'll just say on average four years. So after that time lapses, after you file your tax return and you wait, take your clock out and, and three years pass, you're able to take that position off your books, right? Because at that point, your risk of audit has just pretty much, unless you know you, you did something seriously like a gross misstatement or fraud, your risk of audit essentially goes to zero on that item. And therefore, you're able to take that position down, like you said. That's a great point. And, and, and just along those lines, when we're talking about actually disclosing UTPs in a financial statement, it seems like there's a lot of movement, right? There's items coming on and items coming off. And on financial statements, how do we disclose that? How do we keep track of all that? There are certain requirements that you have to have the uncertain text position disclosed. So a couple things to keep in mind is to it has to be in a tabular reconciliation, like a tabular format. Identification of uncertain text position, they're reasonably expected to change within 12 months, need to be disclosed. UTBs that if recognized would affect your ETR have to be disclosed. Any tax year that, that will still subject to examination or it's a major 
tax jurisdiction related position that you might want to disclose that as well. Now, there are different disclosures, not different, like widely different, but there are disclosures that you have for your public entities versus just all the entities overall. So in other words, companies providing a role for it from one year to the next over a three-year period, like you mentioned, for a three-year stretch of limitation for all the items that are uncertain and or the ones that may be challenged by the IRS or any other authority. And if the company has less than 50% confidence factor that the position would be sustained, they have to keep disclosing there on their financial statement. Within a company's tax footnote in their financial statements, they need that tabular roll forward. It shows everything coming on and going off. And then it also, as you said, kind of explains the nature of, you know, most significant items, right? So, so that's helpful. And I think that I think that's good context. So we talked about how they're calculated, the nature of the calculation, what UTPs are, how the financial statements disclose them. But just taking a step back, you know, from a practical perspective, is there any advice or best practices you would kind of provide to practitioners who are assessing or calculating their UTPs, particularly around if there's a way to kind of standardize or automate this process at all? So the question kind of provides a glimpse into some of the complexity companies face, especially with the tax reform that has happened and how it has changed the complexity or implementation of a lot of different tax law. It's not as simple. It's not as easy to understand. And there are too many layers to that. So what companies, I think, need to do is monitor and evaluate the guidance as it is issued as well as consider educating and engaging with policymakers or implement those challenges, you know, which is affecting their business operations. And to kind of automate that process, I mean, yes, there are tools available outside in the form of technology that you can also implement for your organization, where you can kind of standardize the process and have more streamlined process of how you're tracking those. It's still not as common. You would think people would have already done this. It's not as common still. There's still people struggling with having those things done in Excel. And it could be a lot of work. So for most, from what I've seen in my career, for most of these situations, people rely heavily on the tax advisory work or, you know, advisors from or subject matter expert from one of these consulting companies. Yeah, I think the point you made about tax reform and tax law changes is pivotal when it comes to uncertain tax positions, right? Because let's just say you're looking at a tax position that maybe a company's taken for several years, or maybe just a law that's been around for many years. Companies could get a lay of the land and understand how taxing authorities are sort of looking at a position and they could really come up with confidence factor in a certain way that they're including something on their return if something's been around a long time. But if something's new, if something's brand new and the IRS maybe hasn't even audited the position on many taxpayers at all. If it's, let's just take the example of, you know, 2017 tax reform, when people were including things up for the first time on their 2018 return and 2018 financial statements, they didn't have a history of what, you know, the IRS has been looking at. They didn't have a history of, you know, what the states would look at. And there wasn't a lot of IRS regulations. There wasn't a lot of IRS guidance. So taxpayers were sort of left in a spot where they needed to do the analysis for themselves and they didn't have a lot of support. And that's inherent uncertainty, and that would lead to potentially more uncertain tax positions. So I I think that's a great point. 
Note to multinational companies everywhere, if you think the coronavirus has affected your bottom line, take a look at how it's devastated the economies of governments around the world. And where do you think tax authorities will look to make up for all that lost revenue? That's right, your transfer pricing. You can't afford to be non-compliant, but then you probably can't afford to pay for an overpriced consultant who bills by the hour either. Oops, sorry, big four. We've got the answer. Cross-border solutions, AI-powered transfer pricing software keeps you in compliance by preparing accurate, hyper-localized reports that protect you from transfer pricing audits, penalties, and adjustments. And our technology is available for one flat fee, a fraction of what you'd pay a big-name consultant. Again, apologies, Big Four. Stay in compliance and on budget with cross-border solutions, AI-driven transfer pricing software. It's no wonder we're the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. There we go again. I'm so sorry, Big. You know what? Wait, who am I kidding? Sign up for a free demo of cross-border solutions transfer pricing technology today at xbs.ai slash tp. That's xbs.ai slash tp. So, you know, with that, you know, that kind of brings us to the tail end of the discussion. And, and generally what we like to do to kind of wrap things up is lightning round questions, right? So these are kind of quick hit questions, which just require a one or a couple word answer just to kind of wrap things up. So, so I'll kick it off with the first one. And, and the first one here is, what's the hardest part of dealing with UTPs? And I think the IRS or the taxing authorities realize that like it is too much for the companies without having some kind of history or kind of having a lot of support, right, for these new laws and specifically the kind of where a drastic changes, right? Like how would companies, they did kind of say that, okay, go ahead and use the two factors that we spoke about, recognition measurement to see what most likely Am I going to, you know, be able to sustain the examination? Am I at least being 50% close to what the law is saying? And I guess it was letting them disclose their on their financial statement. Yeah, I think that's well said. And, and in, in, in a few words, I'll give you a few words. <laughs> How would you recommend kind of companies dealing with their financial statement auditors surrounding UTPs? Keep, keep precise work papers as detailed and as clear on your tax position that you're taking. I think that just helps really with your auditors because they do understand where you're coming from. Like 100% not, might be correct, but you can, you know, kind of support with your work papers of this position and why and what you are doing. And, you know, just to kind of wrap it up, what's the most common or even let's say a significant uh, like material UTP item you have kind of seen in your experience? I have to say transfer. Yeah, no, that's... That's definitely what I found as well. When you're trying to straddle different countries' tax laws and come up with that transfer price, oftentimes you do end up with the uncertain tax position, whether in one country or, or potentially multiple countries. And that's why it's so pivotal, right, to focus on transfer pricing. And that's why we kind of have a whole uh, separate podcast, Fiona Show, transfer pricing dedicated to this topic. I think with that, that's a great place to wrap up. Janelle, really appreciate the time. I think, you know, your insights on UTPs, really, really complicated wonky topic, but I think we made it through and, and really appreciate all the insight you provided. And we're looking forward to kind of having you back on the podcast again in the future. Absolutely. I really, really enjoyed talking with you, Howard. And thank you so much for having me here today. And let me talk about uncertain text positions and whatever knowledge I have a little bit and experience working with those. So no, I, I really appreciate that. Thank you. 
A global pandemic, a grim economic forecast, feeling the squeeze, an R&D tax credit can help lower your burn. If you qualify, the IRS and some state governments will give you a tax credit equal to 10% of your company's spend on development activities. You can even take the credit against payroll taxes if you're in the red. All you have to do is claim it. So what's stopping you? If an expensive application process is turning you off, sorry, now you really have no excuse. Cross-Border Solutions AI-driven R&D tax credit software eliminates the need for pricey consultants and allows you to apply for R&D credits all over the world for one low fee. After all, why should you have to spend your whole R&D tax credit on getting your R&D tax credit? It's your money. Keep more of it with Cross Border Solutions, the global leader in AI-driven tax solutions. Request a demo today. Visit xbs.ai/rd. That's xbs.ai/rd. We want to thank Howard and Janelle for joining us on this very informative discussion. If you liked this podcast, you're going to love the other shows in Cross Border Solutions Tax Podcast Suite. That's the Fiona Show R&D Tax Credit, the Fiona Show Transfer Pricing, and the Fiona Show Hot Off the Press. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's the Fiona Show Tax Provision, and we'll keep you up to date on the latest in tax provision. I'm your host, Matthew DeMello. John Alex Busey is our audio producer. Stephen Markow is our associate producer. Mary Lynn Mitchumstrom is our executive producer. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. We'll catch you next week. Mm-hmm.